Why do we talk like there's light in our minds? Why do we say, I see, or my eyes were opened, when we come to understand something? Why do we call it enlightenment when we reach a new level of understanding? Why do we depict light bulbs going off over our heads? Why do we ask other people, do you see what I mean? The assertion in this episode is that we talk like that because there really is light in our mind. It's not light like you get from the sun or an LED, the cranium blocks those pretty well. But if it's not that light, then what kind of light is it and how does it interact with our mind? That's exactly what we're going to try to shed some light on tonight. Stay tuned. apologize for that light pun. Um, I played it up a little bit too much, but it was so good. I just felt like I can't squander this this potential here. Welcome to Swedenborgian Life. My name is Curtis Childs. I'm the host, and we are looking at light today. And if you go anywhere in Swedenborg, which <laughs> normally saying that to someone blank face, but if you're watching this show, you probably are interested in that in that train of thought. If you go anywhere in Swedenborg, he's going to talk about light. And the light is more than just what we see and interact with. So we're going to get to the bottom of it. If you want to offer your own insights or questions to direct the conversation, get them in now. Social media, YouTube primarily, we'll take them and uh, we'll answer them at the end of the show. All right, so light is all over spiritually things. I mean, when we want to make something look spiritual for, for a graphic or something on this show, we often add shades of light to it, and that, that signifies that you go into any near-death experience, they're talking about the light. Embraced by the Light is the name of a book by Betty Eady. What is it with this light? I mean, light is cool, but is it extra cool in the realm of spiritual things? That's what we're going to look at tonight, and we got to start with the basics. So we're just going to very, very small steps. Take a look at, in our first section, what is light? This is the formula of the show, a lot of the time. We have to start by examining something physical. And from that, we create a foundation that we can then learn something spiritual about. Swedenborg says that he had his eyes, mind, spiritual eyes opened to this, the afterlife, to the realm of the spirit. And it's not something that exists separate from what we have here. There's everything that's, that we observe in the physical world, and there's an entirely new system. Everything is connected, and actually the physical world is like a reflection of the spiritual world. Not a direct one, like in a mirror, but it's it's a symbol, it's an interpretation through symbolism. So everything here is an echo of something there, including light. So we are going to look at spiritual light today, but we got to first look at physical light, because to get a sense, spiritual light is something relatively ethereal. If we try to picture it on its own, we'll be missing some of the subtleties, because you can't just put it under a microscope, but you can put physical light well, maybe not under a microscope, but you can study it, and so that's what we're going to do today. So this first section, we're laying the groundwork by looking at physical light. We sort of take it for granted, the modern theory of light, and that we understand it as well as we do. It wasn't always like that, so we're going to start by giving a little, a brief history of this study of light through the ages, because we need to appreciate the phenomenon and how hard it was to get a grasp of it. So here is a, a little rundown of the ancient history of the study of light. 
The history of this goes way back to the ancient world, uh, apparently to 750 BC. Assyria, Egypt, Greece, Rome, eventually. The philosophers from that time would, would work on explaining where this came from, and they had atomic theories, they would call it, okay, or the historian's atomic theory. Everything was made of, of earth and fire and air, and, and the philosophers would try to come up with their atom theories and such to explain how that was bending, you know, come up with the explanation. And, and it's fascinating to think, boy, these are really good explanations they were coming up with, not having high-tech science to, to push them forward. The idea of uh, refraction is very important. Amazingly, is a Persian from the, about the year 1000 AD, wrote a book called On Burning Mirrors and Lenses. I be in Ibn Sal, S-A-H-L, you can look it up. Uh, wrote this book, and I said, yeah, yeah, I did another one of these atomic theories. No, the guy had the law of refraction perfectly. All the geometry, maybe even the trigonometry, I'm not sure, behind the whole thing. Uh, the lenses started showing up in for spectacles. That was a medieval thing. That was like 13, that was, um, 13th century work. So that was dipping a little bit into the ancient study of light. Now let's take a look at the less ancient study of light. This is what was around just before and as Swedenborg was living and doing his own writing on the nature of light and spiritual light. So here's sort of the, the, the bookends around Swedenborg. It wasn't until 1600 that people, the lens makers, started to figure out making telescopes. And that was in Holland mostly, with the lens makers there. So there was a Hans Lippershey who filed the patent for the telescope. He'd already done a microscope 10 years or so earlier on this. Galileo is another icon name. He saw the telescope in Holland, okay, somehow, and picked up on that really fast, okay, and, and he went to town with it, okay. He was the leading expert on telescopes. After that, Descartes shows on, on, the, on, the, on the picture here, and he wrote a book, uh, thing called Treatise on Light, and he had an idea of these vortical, corpuscular kind of thing that there was no vacuum, but these, these imagined or corpuscular things that filled the universe kind of thing and accounted for everything, okay? After that, um, Huygens, uh, spelled H-U-Y-G-E-N, is a big icon in optics. And he came up with the idea of wave theory of light. Here is a wave front. If you had a strobe light, flash, 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 and it'll send a wave, woo, woo. the speed of light, of course, you won't be able to see it, but the speed of light, if you imagine water waves, you can imagine these are like water waves going out. But a strobe light could conceivably pulse these light waves out like this. And so Huygens was able to reconstruct any reflection or refraction phenomena in terms of these waves. And so you can look it up in the book, you can see it. It's a comp kind of complicated looking diagram. You have to draw a lot of these waves, and all of a sudden, woo, the wave front comes out of the whole thing. Newton shows up on this scene here. He uh, wrote down some things about planetary motion and the mass and, and, and forces and things like this, and that was off the scale revolutionary. He, he, that was, you know, intergalactic home, home run kind of thing. It was really great that he did that. And then he pulled his notes out on light. He loved to play with light, and he wanted to do math. He wanted to be the mathematician with the light kind of a thing. And so he played with it, and he wanted to dabble and explore with it, okay? And then somehow, years later, he had to, he felt like I needed to write this down kind of thing. And out from that comes this book called Optics that he wrote. So when the book Optics came out kind of thing, Newton's Optics was a very powerful happening, okay? But frankly, there isn't a whole lot new in the book <laughs> kind of thing, okay? 
Um, but he was a name, he was an icon, and you had to deal with it. For us to look back on that, we, we really have to be careful not to um, use 2020 hindsight as, as expression uh, to judge what was going on there. It was, it was a free-for-all to explain how light works. And I tell you, you can open up a physics book, the introductory physics books, and you'll see quickly, even though they simplify it, it is a very complex world, the whole thing. So we are wallpapering the insides of our minds right now with the ambiance of the study of light, particularly that last point that Dr. Blair made. Light is complex. Even those really smart people before who were trying hard at it without modern technology, you know, they were doing the best with what they have, but light is a complex thing that is, you can't just intuitively know what it is. It's got all kinds of structure and laws and mechanisms within it. If that's physical light, spiritual light is that to the nth degree. That is not just a thing without any characteristics. So in the study of light and how people came to learn about it, we're just setting up the soil so that our minds can have this, this more tangible idea of spiritual light and an appreciation for how intense light, physical light, is as an analog to spiritual light. With that in mind, uh, we're just going to do a little more setting up uh, uh, of the mind space. And this is, now we're going to turn to a current understanding of light and how it's changed so we can get a sense of stuff that even Swedenborg didn't have access to in his day. So here's the current understanding of light. Light is uh, electromagnetic radiation. Um, and so we have a, a spectrum of different colors. We think of light as being colors, but really the electromagnetic spectrum goes beyond what we can see, it goes beyond light we can receive in our eye out into the infrared, which we experience as uh, warmth or heat, uh, and into the ultraviolet that uh, we know there's you know, ionizing radiation or that can do um, affect our DNA. You get sunburn if you have uh, UV, if you get irradiated with ultraviolet light, but we can't see it with our eyes and all the way out to uh, x-rays and uh, you know we can do other amazing things with with x-rays uh, like looking at our teeth you know when you go to the dentist each color um, corresponds to a different energy a different amount of energy and so x-rays we think of as being very energetic uh, and infrared radiation we think of as being less energetic the foundation I think of, of another important you know pr probably in some ways more important than the realization that light is both a wave and has a particle nature as a quantized, so it comes in discrete amounts, is um, uh, Maxwell's equations. Uh, so in, in, 18, in the 1860s, I think in 1865, James Clark Maxwell, uh, basically he took all of the different uh, theories and equations that people had put together in the, the years leading up to it. He took all of these theories and he composed them into one unified theory and really what it describes is it describes how electromagnetic radiation reacts with uh, or interacts with matter. He uh, put together that this wave or this you know, high frequency electromagnetic radiation can actually polarize and cause oscillations in the material in, in a medium through uh, you know, electrons moving uh, around an atom. Basically it can accelerate those electrons and so this, this back and forth of how the electromagnetic radiation or light interacts with matter is really the fundamental 
uh, piece that that puts it all together because light on its own really isn't very interesting. What we're interested in from a modern scientific perspective is how it interacts with light and vice versa, how mat you know how matter interacts with light, how light interacts with matter, and how we can create new colors, new light from a medium, and also how a particular energy, when it impinges on a substance, how it interacts with that substance and what what the effect is of the light in the matter. And that that really was the that unification of all of the theories that people had put out there about how matter behaves or different laws. His, his, uh, his theory just took all of those and encapsulated them in one theory and you know there are uh, in uh, a set of equations that are self-consistent and that theory is still the basis of modern uh, understanding of how light and matter interact it's still valid today so you may recognize dr owner from the episode we did what light and heat can tell you about god where we went to his lab saw all this, these lasers and things super cool stuff so we appreciate him coming back on the show keep this stuff he said in mind as parallels. There's possibly two experiences you could have had watching that. One is you were following what he said, you you, you speak that language, and you're, oh, that's cool, because if you think about all those characteristics and nuances of light, the waves and the... the, 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 that to think of that kind of... uh, those specifics or specifics like them applying to spiritual light, to me, that's cool. Or if you weren't following it at all, what what is he talking about? You know, a little respect for how complex light is and then spiritual light would be in the same way. Before we move to our next section, a little bit of trivia. We were learning about Newton. If you want to, uh, you can read about a debate between none other than Swedenborg and Newton, which you may say, I'd never heard that they had a debate. Well, it happened after Newton was dead. Don't go right now because you're watching this show, but check out Swedenborg's book, Last Judgment 291, where he recounts a lengthy conversation that he had with Newton after Newton was already in the spiritual world. Does Newton recant his color theory? Do they become friends? I'm not going to give away. No spoilers, but check it out sometime. Okay, we've set up our physical foundation. Thanks for hanging. Now that we've got it, let's soar off and take a look at the characteristics of spiritual light. Like I said, you can't go anywhere in Swedenborg without light and heat appearing. This is the same great duality as truth and good, faith and charity, and love and wisdom. And in that pairing, light would be on the wisdom side. If you don't get what I'm talking about, let me confuse you even more. Here is... uh, And this book here, you may notice... Uh, you may have never heard of it. What is divine wisdom? You've heard of Swedenborg's divine love and wisdom that you can download for free on Swedenborg.com. But what's divine wisdom? Well, I installed this little audio button here, and one click is going to let you know. So here we go. The book Divine Wisdom was a small work that Swedenborg never published. If you're looking for it, you might be able to find it at the end of another unpublished work called Apocalypse Explained. And at the end of volume six, in some editions, that divine wisdom is tucked in there. 
He never published Divine Wisdom. There's also another work, Divine Love, that he never published. But eventually he did publish Divine Love and Wisdom together. Do you see how hard we work for you guys? We dig into every nook and cranny of the Swedenborg experience to bring you confusing text. This is unpublished, so it doesn't have a new translation to it. It'll be a little wordy, but it's teaching us interesting things. He says, In the Lord there is love and there is wisdom. Nevertheless, these in him are not two, but one. For the wisdom is of the love, and the love is of the wisdom. And by reason of this union, which is reciprocal, there results a one. This one is the divine love that in the heavens becomes visible to angels as a sun. These two things which in the Lord are a one do indeed proceed forth as two distinct things from himself as a son, the wisdom as light and the love as heat, yet it is only to outward appearances that they proceed forth as two distinct things. In themselves they are not distinct, the light being of the heat and the heat being of the light, for just as they are one in the sun, so they are one in the least point. That which proceeds forth from the sun is also the sun in the least very in the least parts of it, and consequently is the sun universally in every point. The expressions every point and least part are used, but spatial points and spatial parts are not meant, for there is nothing of space in what is divine. This being spiritual, not natural. Woo! A lot of stuff there. Essentially, there's two elements that see that are one in God love and wisdom. They go out, they can be received as two, but they're really one, and we're going to touch on that more. Think electromagnetic spectrum. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how wisdom, that one of these two essential elements of the divine, actually appears in the spiritual world as light. So back to divine wisdom one. The fact that love and wisdom in proceeding forth from the Lord as a son, are to outward appearances two distinct things, the wisdom visible as light and the love perceptible as heat, has this result that they are received as two distinct things by angels. The divine wisdom appearing in the heavens as light, in its essence, is not light. It clothes itself with light, so as to appear before the sight of angels. In its essence, that wisdom is divine truth, and the light is the outward appearance of it and the correspondent of it. So you have this thing, divine truth, which is in itself not visible. This is substance itself, the underlying essence of reality. However, it presents itself in a form in which the angelic mind or the human mind can see, and this is light. So there, here we have photons or whatever we want to call them, lighting everything up. There, the essential nature of that substance is divine truth or divine wisdom. So, why do we talk about light in the mind? We had this screenshot in the intro. Uh, There is light in the mind. The light, the mind is in the spiritual world, and the light there is this wisdom. So, just like, let's say you're trying to walk across a garage that was dirty, not like my garage, which is always, always clean. There is a difficulty in making your way across that room. You don't know what you're tripping over. Is it those boxes that the table came in? Is it a rake? Where is that thing lying? Where is that gutter downspout? If light is shed, you can make everything out. You can navigate it in the mind. Can't it be dark and confusing if you don't? What are these thoughts and feelings? What is true? What am I overreacting to? What's unnecessary? What's necessary? What does this mean? When you understand something, that's not just an analogy. That is spiritual light in the mind, okay? In case this is all too theoretical, here's something maybe a little more tangible. This is from Swedenborg's Heaven and Hell 128, and it's a video about how 
We have inner sight and outer sight and how the two interact. The reason divine truth is light for angels is that angels are spiritual and not natural. Spiritual people see things from their sun and natural people see from theirs. Divine truth is what provides angels with discernment and discernment is their inner sight which flows into their outer sight and produces it. So whatever is seen in heaven from the Lord as the sun is seen in the light. Since this is the source of light in heaven, it varies depending on the acceptance of divine truth from the Lord or, which amounts to the same thing, depending on the intelligence and wisdom angels participate in. This means that it is different in the heavenly kingdom than in the spiritual kingdom, and different in each community. It even differs within each community. People in the middle are in more light, and people round about are in less. In short, to the extent to which angels are open to divine truth, that is, participate in intelligence and wisdom from the Lord, they have light. This is why heaven's angels are called angels of light. Light isn't just cosmetic, it determines your geography there. And there is, it's not, it's, it's about your opening. There is the divine truth emanating, but how much you accept it is how much you receive, and it moves around where you are, and you can tell which community you're in based in it. So light is a huge deal, which, as we said, anything that has to do with spiritual experience, whether it be near-death experience, uh, out-of-body experience, the things like Swedenborg described, modern, ancient, it all features light. So light is a, light is a pillar of the whole thing. Uh, which obviously light is a big deal here. This, this show is made possible by light, otherwise it would just be a black screen. But it seems that, believe it or not, light takes on an even more essential function spiritually. Let's talk a little bit about the behavior of spiritual light. We're going to return to the text, Divine Wisdom. And this is just a little account of the way the thing rolls. It is evident in heaven, though not in the world, that light is the outward appearance of wisdom and the correspondent of it, there being no light in heaven other than spiritual light, which is the light of wisdom, illuminating all things that come into existence there from divine love. The wisdom with angels enables them to understand these in their essence, and the light enables them to see it in their form. The light in each heaven, therefore, is equivalent in degree to the wisdom with angels there. In the highest heavens, the light is flame-colored, flashing as if from lustrous gold. This is because they are in wisdom. In the heavens below these, the light is white, shining brightly as if from gleaming silver. This is because they are in intelligence. And in the lowest heavens, the light is like the noonday light in the world. This is because they are in knowledge. So not only is light important, but it behaves a little differently than light does in this world. If you're in a room with somebody, or somebody new walks into the room, the light doesn't change usually with them. However, this does happen spiritually that the people living in a certain area dictate what the light is like there. Around here uh, on the planet Earth, you know, you walk more towards the equator, you get brighter, more direct uh, sun rays. It looks different. The more north you go, the more slanty it gets. But there, it has to do with intellect and how are people receiving things from God. 
So that is the nature of the effect of this light on the world. So let's talk a little bit about if light is truth or wisdom, what's the opposite? Let's look at falsity. So this is a apocalypse. Spiritual life consists in the understanding of truth and in the perception from the will of good. For truths are in the light of heaven, and this so much that the truths themselves give light in heaven, and this because the divine truth proceeding from the Lord makes all light in the spiritual world, and that light gives all intelligence and wisdom to angels. Now as truths themselves are of the light, it follows that falsities are of no light, for they extinguish light. Consequently, falsities are called in the word darkness, and as they are darkness, they are the shadow of spiritual death. But it is to be known that the falsities of evil constitute such darkness, not falsities that are not from evil. So there's misconceptions that are rooted in dysfunction and misconceptions that you're just wrong, you know, that one obviously is more serious than the other. If if there's some compulsion to an evil behavior, Swedenborg says that, uh, and I think we get to this quote later in, or maybe I was just reading it, that, no, I was just reading it, it that f- evil burning in the human heart, is like coals, and falsity is the light that it gives off. So if we have some kind of love of, some kind of evil, love of harming people, love of stealing from people, love love of some kind of corruption, that creates false thoughts. It just emanates misconceptions about the world. Those are not as serious as, uh, you know, just falsity that's not from evil. So that's a little bit on that. And this can be a pretty intense dynamic for people who are first showing up in the spiritual world. Uh, This is a little excerpt Swedenborg gives about new arrivals there and their first experience with the light. Secrets of Heaven 4415. Recently arrived souls, that is, newcomer spirits, or people who arrive in the other life several days after physical death, are astounded to find light there. They bring with them the misconception that light comes only from the sun and its fiery matter. Still less do they realize that there is such a thing as light to illuminate the intellect, since they were not aware of it during bodily life. See, I told you, man, light in the intellect. Still less, again, do they realize that this light enables us to think and generates any activity in our intellect by flowing into images acquired from worldly light. If these newcomers had been good on earth, they are taken up into heavenly communities and ushered from one to another in order to be taught. The goal is for them to see by personal experience that light exists in the other world and that it is stronger than any possible light in the world. So the goal is learning. It's not about, like, you should already know it. You get to learn to experience. They're also intended to sense that the more light they live in there, the more insight they have. And again, insight, there's that, that light language in, in the, the description of knowing. Some who had risen into the realms of heavenly light spoke with me from there, confessing that they had never believed anything like it, that worldly light was murky by comparison. From where they were, they also gazed through my eyes into the light of the world, which they perceived simply as a dark cloud. That's the kind of light people on earth have, they said sympathetically. These comments make it clear why the word refers to heavenly angels as angels of light. They also make it clear that the Lord is our light and therefore our life. So these people are feeling sorry for us uh, here on this earth because of our light. And they had just come from this earth, so they did a pretty quick turnaround. Now remember, They're not saying, oh, it's not bright enough physically there. It's talking about the way we think about things, the the state of enlightenment of the human race, that we're we're pretty much, and I know this is true for me a lot of the time, we're just bumping around in the dark down here in terms of really knowing what's good and true and having this peace and wisdom and love that makes heaven. 
So it can be quite a shock to get there and, and like stepping out of an artificially lit room into the bright sunlight. So that's cool. And I want to dig into it a little bit deeper because there are different types of light and we often call those colors. And if there is a physical analog where there are different wavelengths that produce different colors, what produces colors? Because people report seeing a lot of colors in the afterlife, near-death experiences, they will say, there was colors there I never saw before. What mechanism creates those colors? Let's take a look in part three. So, we're going to begin this segment on colors, and that might have seemed like a creepy intro. Don't worry. Uh, You'll know soon why it was creepy. Not all colors are creepy there, but some things are creepy, and we're going to get to those creepy things. Sorry for saying creepy so many times. I hope I didn't creep you out. Colors as variations of goodness and truth. Secrets of heaven. The colors that appear in the heavens are inexpressibly beautiful because they are modifications of heavenly light, and heavenly light is divine truth radiating from the Lord. Naturally, then, these colors are produced by variations in goodness and truth. So they are modifications of light coming from the Lord by way of angels. The light emanating from the Lord looks like a flame in the deepest heaven, so the colors it produces glow red and flash. The same light looks like white light in the middle heaven, though, so the colors it produces glow white, and depend on how much goodness they have in them, they sparkle. That is why there are two fundamental colors to which all others relate, red and white. Red serves to represent goodness, and white to represent truth. So it's an interesting statement, because you probably took some kind of art classes, and when they talk about the primary colors, they don't talk about red and white. They talk about some other colors, whatever they are. How would I know? So Swedenborg's saying red and white are the basis for everything. What does it mean? And this, But then this also follows with this constant uh, dualism or, or pairing of two things, love and wisdom, red and white. So what could that mean? Or actually, we're going to have Dr. Odner talk about it, because he is familiar with Swedenborg's teachings. He had a couple of thoughts on what could Swedenborg mean by red and white are the the fundamental primary colors. So here he is. One of the most interesting things about electromagnetic radiation, you know, we usually call call, uh, the whole everything light, but really light is just what we perceive with our eye, which is a limited region of the electromagnetic spectrum. So we are able to see light, you know, from between that has a wavelength between about 400 nanometers to about 700 nanometers. And and really light or electromagnetic radiation spans a much broader range of wavelengths and energies than that. Our perception of light all happens with our eyes, but when we feel the sun's warmth or heat, what we're feeling is uh, infrared electromagnetic radiation being absorbed by our skin. You know, what I like to imagine in Swedenborg's description of red versus white light is that the red red light, you know, Swedenborg talks a lot about how good or love corresponds, you know, to to warmth. And red light, red electromagnetic radiation, infrared, what we can't see with our eyes in this world, uh, is what we perceive as that warmth. And Swedenborg talks about white light being truth. And truth is light, you know, it's electromagnetic radiation we can perceive with our eyes. And Swedenborg talks a lot about uh, our particular senses in regard to percept, you know, what they mean in terms of our reception of the 
of the Lord's inflowing. I like it, and I think it takes, because we have this modern understanding of things, it takes, Swedenborg couldn't comment directly on the different kinds of electromagnetic stuff, so we look at what might go with what, so... I want to say that. I also want to say sorry if I had a couple of audio cutouts there. Uh, I was just nervous, so I cut out for a few seconds. Uh, I do apologize. Variations of light are based in communities. Each community has its own light. We talked about the ability of the mind to shape the the surroundings in the spiritual world, and Swedenborg elaborates it here in Secrets of Heaven 4414. There are as many different kinds of light in heaven as there are angelic communities composing heaven, and in fact, there are angels in each community. The reason is that heaven is organized according to differences in goodness and truth. Yeah, it's okay to have differences in goodness and truth there, and therefore according to states of understanding and wisdom, and so according to the acceptance of light from the Lord. As a result, the light is never exactly the same in any two places in all of heaven. Rather, it differs in its blend of fiery red and bright white and its strength. Understanding and wisdom is nothing but an extraordinary modification of the heavenly light from the Lord. So you, you might think that heaven is all the same. You, know, you all come to realize the truth, and then you're all the same. But Swedenborg is saying nothing is the same. In heaven. Nobody understands, even though there is this common truth, nobody understands it in the same way, in just the same way. And far from that being in imperfection, that that is essential to the nature of heaven, that that is cool, that nobody can grasp it quite in the way you can. Every individual person experiences love in a way that nobody else quite does and understands truth in a way that nobody else quite does. And because of that, you can do something to help the rest of us that no one else can do. So you're cool. Thanks for being you. That's the message. Speaking of being who we are, who we are changes the light in the spiritual world, as I said. And the light can can um, be an image or a projection of your character there. So you might want to think about your character. Do I want light from the light of who I am radiating out. Secrets of Heaven 4416 uh, describes this. There's a video we're being read here. Uh, I mean, there's Swedenborg being read in the background, a quote from Secrets of Heaven. And this is the description of that phenomenon and how it plays out in the different levels that he visited. The character of spirits in the next life is apparent from the light in which they dwell. For, as has been stated, The light by which they see corresponds to the light by which they perceive. People who have been acquainted with truths and have also substantiated them, and yet have led a life of evil, are seen to dwell in light which is white as snow, yet cold like the light of winter. But when such people approach those who dwell in the light of heaven, their own light becomes thoroughly darkened and turns into pitch darkness, And when they withdraw from the light of heaven, an inferior yellow light, like that from sulfur, takes its place, in which they themselves look like ghosts, and their truths like ethereal shapes. For their truths have accompanied a false faith, the nature of this faith being such that they believed truths, but only because they thereby earned position, gain, and reputation. It made no difference to them what the truth may have been. All that mattered was the acceptance of it. 
Those, however, who are under the influence of evil and consequently of falsities, are seen dwelling in an inferior light like that of a charcoal fire. This becomes a thoroughly murky light when it comes near the light of heaven. But the light by which those people see varies according to the falsity and evil which govern them. From this, one could see also why people who lead a life of evil cannot possibly have faith in divine truths that spring from sincerity of heart. For they are dwelling in that smoke-filled light, which, when heavenly light falls upon it, becomes dark to them, as a result of which they see neither with their eyes nor with their mind. At the same time they suffer intense pains, and some sink into a kind of unconsciousness. Consequently, the evil cannot possibly accept truth. Only the good can. Someone who is leading a life of evil is incapable of believing that he dwells in an inferior light because he is not able to see the light in which his spirit dwells, only the light in which the sight of his eye and consequently his natural mind dwells. But if he could see the light of his spirit and could find out what it would then become if the light of truth and good from heaven were to flow into it, he would know full well how far away he was from receiving the things of light, that is, matters of faith, and how much farther away he was from assimilating the things of charity, and so how distant he was from heaven. No, a little bit gloomy, but I want to say there's three positive takeaways from this, if you look at it in its larger context. First of all, the division of heaven and hell, that there is a heaven and there is a hell, as Swedenborg describes it, separate from each other, that is as much for the happiness of the people in hell as it is in heaven. You saw here, if you have your mind in a, in a perverse, uh, spiteful, uh, light that's full of negativity towards other people, when the light of wisdom shines in, you're miserable, because it completely contradicts your view of the world, which is that everybody else exists to serve me, no one is actually valuable other than me, I'm right about everything. When you see the truth, it makes you miserable. So, God has created, a, or God has allowed a place where people don't have to have the light of heaven shining in, because it makes them uh, miserable, right? That That's part of it. Also, that people who have these different kinds of false lights. To them, they see just fine by it. It's not like people live in a life where they never see brightness, and they're miserable all the time. Swedenborg compares them to birds, uh, owls, like night night birds of prey that actually can see just fine in the dark. And this is something God is, is giving everyone because He wants you to be as happy as you possibly can. Even though you're living in this dark, yellow, tingy sort of light, we're going to make that seem like day to you so that you can be happy, be as happy as possible. And finally, when it just is thinking of it as light, you can kind of think, well, shouldn't everyone have bright light? But when you think about it as a way of seeing the world, can't you just have such a terrible way of, of seeing the world? Just think about whoever it is that you think sees the world in the worst way. Think about that as a mindset. What kind of light is that? Somebody who's who's full of hatred or racism or something like that. that that's a tough light to live in, and spiritually that creates the conditions that you're in. So those are my thoughts on it. Maybe you're still bummed out from it. Sorry, I thought it was cool looking. Part four, we're going to talk about how we're both here and there at the same time. 
We receive light from both worlds. We're obviously receiving physical light right now. It's coming out of your phone. But we also, in the mind, it's not something that only happens after death. Swedenborg, in that last quote that was in the video, said, if, if people could see the condition of their spirit right now, they would know what kind of light they were living in. And that was his experiences. He got to see people living in this world and then get to see what their spirits were doing. And it would, his whole life mission became, we got to tell people how things work so I can show them, look, this is what's going on for you spiritually. And when, when the body dies, this is what the reality is going to be for you. So he was constantly like taking his books, what he'd written, sending them to universities, trying to get anybody to listen. But it's hard, man. You know, it's hard to get people to listen to Swedenborg. So let's talk for a little bit about how it's not just something that is off in the future. It's happening right now for us. Back to divine wisdom, our go-to number. The light in the higher heavens is brilliant. Exactly like a star glittering and shining brightly in itself by night, and there is a light continuously because the sun there doesn't set. It is the same light that enlightens the understanding of those men in the world who are in the love of being wise, but is not seen by them because they are natural, not spiritual. So it's affecting us, but we're not seeing it. It is possible to see it, for it has been seen by me, but only with the eyes of my spirit. Moreover, it has been granted me to perceive that when I was in the light of the highest heaven, I was in wisdom, when in the light of the second heaven, I was intelligence, and when I was in the light of the lowest heaven, I was in knowledge, whereas when I was in natural light, I was in ignorance of spiritual things. Doesn't it seem like the internal weather can change? Isn't it that you can be in the same physical location, you might even be physically brighter this day, but you just don't feel sharp. You just don't, your perspective on life is all off. It's just not there. It's because the weather in the mind, your spirit is in different kinds of light, or so says Swedenborg. A little more on how this works, Secrets of Heaven 8694. The nature of revelation in people with goodness and therefore with a desire for truth cannot be described. So we're talking about the nature of revelation or or of learned higher truths. Such revelation is not plain and clear, but it is not entirely obscure either. It is a kind of approval from within that assents to the truth of a thing and disapproval if the thing is not true. When there is approval, the mind rests serene, and such a state holds the acknowledgement that constitutes faith. What causes the situation to be such is the influence heaven exerts from the Lord. After all, from the Lord through heaven comes the light that floods and illuminates the intellect or the inner eye. What becomes visible in that light is all true. The light itself is divine truth radiating from the Lord, and this is the light that shines in heaven, as has been shown many times before. And maybe that doesn't hit you very hard, but I think that it is a great description of the experience of learned higher truths, that you, it's not like if you're, unless you've had some kind of overt spiritual experience, it's not like they're obviously true, like a stone in front of you that you can see every detail of, but there is this inner, you read something, you learn something, you, you hear something, that's true. Like, I can feel that, and there's this inner sort of gladness. I, I'm maybe not articulating it very well, but I, I feel like he, he really hits on what it feels like there. So kudos to Swedenborg. You're doing all right for yourself. Let's talk about sunrise. The sunrise is a light phenomenon. Every light phenomenon has an analog that goes on in the mind. 
when we come to understand something, or come, if we're, there's something that's been bothering us, dragging us down, we finally gain perspective on it, or, or learn something that is really useful, or gain a deeper insight about life that changes us, that's the sun rising in the mind. So we're going to look at some actual footages, footages of sunrises happening on earth above cities, which are also a symbol of the mind, and look at it with your correspondence's hat on, meaning this is a physical image of the spiritual phenomenon of us realizing something. So take a look at this, just let your mind go, just be open to the idea that this is, this is a living picture of the mind understanding something, and see if you get any further insights. So just a few seconds, you know, 40 seconds, relax for that time, meditate. Here you go. let that shot that last shot play longer man that is beautiful Whew. uh clouds are cool and that there's a whole other symbolism with clouds we were just looking at the light of course the light changes the way everything looks so did you get it did you feel something that's happening in the mind not that there's a little ball that's rising in the mind but something's happening that's the lord coming with insight and it, can't you see you feel that the two are connected but we don't always perceive that light of heaven because our focus is on the light of the world a lot of the time. AE401, Swedenborg says, as the natural mind is below or outside of the spiritual mind, it is also round about it, for it enwraps it on every side. When the spiritual mind, which is the higher and interior mind, is closed, then the natural mind, which is the lower and exterior, is in thick darkness in respect to all things of heaven and the church. For all the light that the natural mind has and that constitutes his intelligence is from the light of his spiritual mind, and this light is the light of heaven. So, we got to have natural light, we got to focus on the world, but think about that light of heaven. In this next section, we're going to look at how that light shining through each of our minds makes a particular pattern that can be made nowhere else. Let's take a look at part five. You can just see right at the end, now, oh, it wasn't there at all. Can you tell? I love that super serious music. So this little frog was not actually sitting on top of that thing. There's a frog inside, and mirrors are reflecting light so that it looks like it's on the top, just showing you that light and objects have this intense interaction. This whole section is about the interaction of light and objects. If light is the divine truth, or divine wisdom proceeding out, we're the objects. How we interact makes a difference. We are like a prism that refracts light in different ways. How did I think of that metaphor? Divine Providence 3.30. A person is like an object which variegates rays of light in it. If it produces only unpleasant colors, the light is not to blame. Rays of light can also be variegated into pleasing colors. And that's part of a larger treatise where he is saying, 
God is not the author of falsity or of evil, that God is putting light out, we interact with the light, and that's how it gets changed into either something that's cool still in our own human way or something that's not good. Uh, And this is exactly how physical light works. Uh, And I'm not going to try to educate you on physical light. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Odner again as he talks a little bit about, on a physical level, how does light interact with objects and be thinking, how is that going to apply to the spiritual light? So when we think about objects having a color or seeing an object, really what we're seeing is that light from the sun is coming and interacting with that object. And then the light that results from that interaction is what comes to our eye and we're able to perceive. The way light interacts with matter is it, it comes in and because it's it's a wave or it has it's a wave and its frequency, it's oscillating, what it does is it excites electrons um, that are traveling around nuclei and in atoms and molecules. It starts it accelerates those electrons and they start wiggling too with the same frequency of that light. And uh, one of the amazing things that we've discovered uh, about that is that when you have a charged particle and it's accelerating, you will emit light. It, it emits light. There's some there's a, there's a, some lag time between when you excite the electron and when the wave is coming through and then when it re-emits the light. And so the light that's emitted from the material can actually it it. It, uh, can, can, it can interfere with the electromagnetic radiation from the sun, and it can interfere constructively. That means sort of am- almost amplifies the light, or, or at least you know, keep, keeps it there, or it can destructively interfere with the light. So it can perfectly cancel out the response from the electron, will perfectly cancel out the light that's coming in at that frequency, and that's what we call absorption. So the energy from that light is actually absorbed by the material. And so when we see light being transmitted or refracted through something like a gem, what we're seeing is we're seeing the light that didn't get absorbed. Whenever we see an object, we're not really seeing the original light from the sun, we're seeing the result of the interaction between light from the sun and the material, and the material is is essentially responding, and it's emitting light, uh, either scattering that light or emitting that light, uh, and that's what we're seeing when we see an object. Um, we're seeing light that's been that's been processed by the object, and that's what comes to our eye. That's got to be the clearest, most tangible example of correspondence. Take the sun as an image for God, which Swedenborg says it is a physical image of the spiritual phenomena that is God. Uh, When we're looking at objects illuminated by the sun, we're not seeing the original light from the sun, we're seeing it manipulated by the object. So, if you think about when he was talking about how, based on how the object is shaped, it can cause light rays to either cancel each other out or amplify each other. If you want a picture of this, we took a monochromatic laser, which is just all the same wavelength, the same color, in this case red. If you just shine a laser pointer at a wall, it's just a dot. But you can see here, we've shown it through a prism. You see all these variations, these bands of colors, This is these dappled spots. The dark spots are where there's negative interference and it's canceling the light out. The brighter spots are where there's positive interference or whatever. So, 
the crystal or the prism is changing the way that laser pointer, and it's cool. It looks different now. It's different. You couldn't get that effect just shining the laser pointer. So we object God's truth or God's wisdom is going out, hitting everybody's mind, and everybody's refracting it in different ways. But what what part of us is it hitting? Swedenborg says that our selfhood is actually the prism. Secrets of Heaven 1042. Earthly objects correspond to spiritual entities. That's what I was just saying. And this is why something like a bow in a cloud, like a rainbow, when it appears when the sight is presented in the other life around a spiritual person who has been reborn. The bow is a representation of spiritual attributes within that person's earthly capacities. People who are regenerate and spiritual have the sense that their power of understanding is their own. And into this intellectual selfhood, the Lord instills innocence, kindness, and mercy. The way they receive these gifts determine how their rainbow looks. When displayed, and the more their self-will has been moved out of the way, conquered, and reduced to obedience, the more beautiful it is. So a couple things before we leave this slide. Um, There is a rainbow around people in the spiritual world based on the kind of mind they have, their acceptance of love and wisdom. And it says that uh, this that phrase in the middle of the screen, intellectual selfhood. I want to look at that, that that is something the Lord can put these good things into. That is a phrase that occurs a a lot in Swedenborg, and I wanted to get a translator on it. So this is Dr. Jonathan Rose, who's the series editor for the New Century Edition, explaining a little more what that phrase, intellectual selfhood, means. Intellectual selfhood is an expression that translators have used to translate the Latin word proprium, uh, some people who are seasoned readers of Swedenborg are familiar with the older translations have seen that word actually in the translations because former translations used to leave it in the Latin because it was considered untranslatable. It is related to our word property. And I don't know if you've read some of Oliver Sacks' books or, or have found out about this, but there's something called proprioception, which is your sense that your body is your own. There are people who sometimes after they go through neurological impairment, you know, they wake up from surgery and they keep falling out of bed and the nurse realizes they're taking their own leg and throwing it out of bed because they no longer have the sense that their leg is their own. They, this horrible, someone horrible person as a prank put this leg in the bed and you throw it out. That gives you some sense of what proprium means. Proprioception is the f- sense that your leg is your own. Your proprium is the sense that you are your own person, that your thoughts are your own, your feelings are your own. It's kind of a basic idea. I mean, we all feel that way. Uh, And yet Swedenborg wants to be able to say certain things about that because he says that in a certain way, that's an illusion. The idea that your thoughts, the ideas that your, your feelings are your own is somewhat illusory because actually they flow in from outside of you. Your intellectual selfhood, then, is your sense of ownership of your own ideas, like your own construct. You know, there are some people in this world who have, are, are very convinced of their own view of reality. And no, I, you know, your, your own construct, that's what Swedenborg might refer to as your intellectual selfhood. And that phrase, the proprium, is more often 
as I've come across it in Swedenborg, used in a negative sense as something to overcome. But you see there in the previous quote, him using it in a positive sense, that in the sense of intellectual selfhood, their, their particular viewing of the world that angels have, God can put these good gifts into it. So they are, all, every person who can receive God is like an object that refracts light in different ways. And we want to use an example of prisms because they're, they're featured in our intro slide to this whole show. They're obviously known as good light scattering objects. So we want to take one more look at the physical and see how does, because this is going to, hopefully, the way correspondences are set up, this is going to give insight into the human mind and how we are all individual light scatterers in different ways. So let's take a look at physically how does a prism work. The way a prism works, prisms take advantage of the fact that each color, um, each color corresponds to a different frequency of light. So that's how fast the, the wave wiggles up and down. And also it corresponds to a wavelength of light. When you enter the material, there's interference between the, the emission from the different uh, parts of the material and the direction that they all constructively interfere in is the direction that the light appears to go. Each color, the more it interacts, the more it will bend, and if it interacts less, it will bend less. And so it's the light appears to spread out. And what it tells you is how strongly the material interacts with those wavelengths. If you have a triangular prism and you hit the prism at an angle, the, the angle at which you hit it defines which way the interfering light is going to go after it's been bent. And then when it comes out, it bends again. And so you get it coming coming in. If you have a prism, it comes in, and then it spreads out after the prism, after it exits the prism. Yeah, and so, so materials that appear transparent to us are materials where, where none of the light is being absorbed in the material. So none of the, none of the electrons that you excite are causing or making new waves that destroy or destructively interfere with the light that that excited them in the first place. So that's how a prism works. We can be like a prism scattering the light in different ways, but what dictates the kind of prism that we are? And you can see that clear objects do a lot of cool things with light. Uh, objects that are opaque don't really do that much. So how do we get ourselves to be an interesting, clear object? What dictates the kind of prism that we are? Swedenborg says it's regeneration. The spiritual growth, it would probably be called now, and essentially it's just trying to be a good person. The more that we gravitate towards the good things, being nice to people, uh, learning the truth, but for the sake of doing good, the more we change into this awesome thing that, that looks, that takes light and makes this new experience with it. So let's do one more correspondences meditation where we look at different objects, because everybody's mind is different, Swedenborg was saying, every, every community, every individual has a different kind of light, it's all accepting God's divine truth, but it, it's showing it all in different ways. So let's look at how objects, different objects receive, absorb, affect light, and think about how we can all get to be the coolest object for that that we can. So here you go. Take a look, let it uh, open up the mind.
just thinking of all those objects like different people. It's just light shining into all of them, but it all looks different, and we all want to be these this cool like sea of crystals reflecting the light in ways that are going to help our fellow human beings. So what gets in our way of doing that? True Christianity 404, love for the world and for wealth is like a dark crystal that suffocates light and breaks it only into cover- colors that are dull and faded. It is like fog or cloudiness that blocks the rays of the sun. So love for the world is a Swedenborgianese term that means love of pleasure or of worldly advantages. It's basically being superficial. The more superficial we are, pleasure-seeking, not thinking about our impact, the less we let that light flew, but through. I mean, but it's not like we're always all trying trying to be perfect all the time. It's a mix, and we can fluctuate. Swedenborg describes this in Spiritual Experiences, number five sixty four. When I was considering what the light of understanding is, this is a cool little treatise on the light of understanding, namely that it is the light of truth flowing in from our Lord, and in fact, a higher knowledge of universal truths, such as that the Lord governs all things. Then I understood that personal knowledge obscures this light, and that such details or truths about details are in general light like the variations that cause colors in the world, for which reason regeneration is also compared to the rainbow. I further understood that it is the thinking that makes a human being's quality. When the thinking only clings to worldly and bodily things, then the understanding attaches itself to them to such an extent that the person cannot possibly speak with the heaven of spirits. He goes on to say, For the thought rushes outwards and into oneself, the world and nature, causing persisting fantasies in the other life that must be shaken off and die, which takes place by a painful separation process. It is different in the case of those who are absorbed only in thoughts about the Lord, thus about the things of heaven. There is therefore a twofold arc of the rainbow, one which newly arrived souls love, arising from fantasies joined to what is spiritual, and the other arising from a spectrum of spiritual and heavenly elements, without anything of nature, and such is the very inward heaven. And if you're not familiar with spiritual experiences, the book, it's essentially, that's Swedenborg's cliff notes, or, or not cliff notes, that's not a good analogy. They're his field notes that he is just writing. It wasn't meant to be published. It's sort of the raw data, but it's, it's so interesting that we have to put it on the show every once in a while. And there he's just talking about how, you know, if we have an appetite for both good and bad things, it takes a little while to get that pulled off uh, and, and to start thinking to get accustomed to the light of heaven, much like if you go from a dimly lit place to a bright place, it takes a little while for your eyes to adjust. And we have this adjustment process to look forward to, but it's worth it. And in the next section, the final section, we're going to be making the case for opening ourselves to the light of heaven. So here we go. Spiritually, divine light is everywhere. It's an unlimited resource. It's always coming down. A neighbor of mine, who's very lucky, just got solar panels on their roof. And what they were doing physically is saving the planet, but also they were physically taking a resource that I can't capture with my regular roof right now, uh, and they were making it so that they can now take that, convert it to electricity. And that is like the process of regeneration in the mind, because we can suddenly take this divine truth, which is all around us, and use it for good things. So how do we do that? It might be as simple as throwing a couple uh, times, 
throwing a few prayers in there. Yes, he does mention prayer. Apocalypse revealed 956. This is he's talking about something. Apocalypse revealed is one of his books on the nature of the book of Revelation. He says, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. This symbolically means that anyone who has any knowledge of the Lord's coming and of the new heaven and new church, thus of the Lord's kingdom, let him pray for the Lord's coming. And anyone who desires truths, let him pray for the Lord to come with, here it is, light. And anyone who loves truths will then receive them from the Lord apart from any endeavors of his own. And you might say, well, but I don't really want to pray. That's not something that I do. Well, would you do it if you knew the cool kids were doing it? I don't know if they do it or not, but I do know that spirits in the next life even do pray for light. And this is a description Swedenborg wrote down of that very thing happening at a council that he saw. It was a council that had been called by the Lord. I heard a voice from heaven that said, Discuss. The participants said, About what? About the Lord, the Savior, and about the Holy Spirit, the voice said. When they began thinking about these topics, they had no enlightenment, so they prayed. Then a light flowed down from heaven that first lit up the backs of their heads, then their temples, and finally their faces. Then they began. So, backs of head to temple to face, and that all has meaning as well. Everything corresponds to something. So, that's from Swedenborg's True Christianity 188. If you want to look it up and read, it goes on to talk about what they said, but we're just looking at the light part of it now. Essentially, the light is enlightenment. It is learning new things. But it's not just like, please God, make it so that I'm now I have the light of heaven. You have to do the work of repentance. Swedenborg talks about it in Apocalypse Explained 997. From the Lord is a sun, both heat and light proceed, but the heat is divine good and the light is divine truth. The light, which is divine truth, flows into and enters into every angel of heaven and also into every person in the world and gives internal sight, which is the sight of the understanding. Every person has a faculty for receiving that light that is, for understanding the divine truth. And that faculty is opened as a person grows up and cultivates and forms a rational mind according to order, by the knowledges of good and truth. But the heat, which is divine good, does not flow into an angel or a person in the way that the light, which is divine truth, does, for the reason that people are born into evils of every kind, and evils obstruct. Consequently, evils must first be removed before the heat, which is divine good, can flow in. And evils are removed by looking upon them as sins against God, shunning them by praying to the Lord for help. And so far as people thus receive divine good, so far they can come to the light of understanding divine truth. For the way of divine truth into people who are reformed is through the good of the will and of the life therefrom with them. But evils that belong to the will and the consequent falsities that belong to the thought obstruct and extinguish the light. And at the end, there's a little recipe for regeneration, as Swedenborg describes it. Notice this thing is, if you don't like the word evil, you can say out of order, you know, you can say uh, confused, diseased, something in you that hurts people and you wouldn't want someone else doing to you. Golden rule kind of stuff. See it, say, even though I want to do this or I want to be like this, I'm going to push back against it ask for divine help, it comes in, sort of like the 12 steps. So that is the way to let 
the light in. And now we want to go from theory to experience. This is a story of somebody who was dealing with a very, what you could call, a dark time, and they used sort of this principle uh, of inflowing and, and uh, of truth to take what was a negative time and, and let it turn into a, a positive time. So here's Bronwyn telling her story. My story is that I, for many years, have not painted, have not had a creative practice. And two years ago, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And this was a very scary time for me, a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. And I had to do surgery, and then I had to do this treatment for cancer, which involved swallowing a radioactive pill to treat any uh, cancer cells in my body and involved one week of isolation. And I am someone who does not like to take a Tylenol, so (laughs) I was very nervous about this treatment. I was nervous about if it would work. I was nervous about the possible side effects. Um, It was just a very disconcerting, fearful time in my life. And this idea came to me, maybe through a friend, maybe through God, I don't know. to transform this time, to use this time, this week that I would spend away from anyone, painting. I had previously in my life spent some time painting, but I literally hadn't touched a brush in three years at this time. And I also decided that I would kind of up the game. And so I I had never painted big before. I'd painted on small canvases or paper. And I bought a large canvas, three feet by four feet. And this, I felt like I was robbing a bank. like. They know this doesn't belong to me. I'm not someone who knows how to do this. So I bought this large canvas, and I aligned this moment of swallowing this radioactive pill with then I began working on this large canvas. And I thought that it would be the first and last time that I ever spent a week painting or painting on a large canvas. But this this week for me ended up being really transformative, and it ended up being filled with great peace and great um, ease and flow. And I spent the time painting and it was like each brush stroke just calming my fears, just being so gentle with myself. Of course I'm nervous, you know, of course. You know, this thyroid cancer oriented me to my, the fragileness of my life in a way I hadn't before. So she's using an object, a painting, that reflects and absorbs light in different ways to help her process this this emotional, spiritual kind of thing that was going on. So let's take a look uh, at the actual painting and a little more of how this helped her through and the principles behind it. Someone asked me recently if painting was a hobby, and I was like, well, is going to church a hobby? (laughs) It's spiritual practice. So for me, it's my Sabbath. It's my restoration. And now I have completed over 90 paintings, large paintings. Since my practice started with opening to compassion for myself when I was going through this cancer treatment, the the painting and praying, the meditation was so transformative for me. And then when I stepped into continuing to paint, I, people started asking me about commissions and if I would do them. One person I was working on a commission for, I said, how could I, hold you in prayer and she said for the safety and health of her family hidden in that prayer is is a fear you know it's like 
what if something happens? It's other things have happened to other people. What if it happens to my people? There's a fear hidden in that prayer. And what I held was for her was that she would have courage to navigate life however it unfolded. I think in our culture we have, you know, we have a significant problem with addiction and numbing out and a desire to escape our lives. And for me, painting is being present with the darkness. It's being present with the failure. I, I feel like each brushstroke on the canvas is holding space. It's, it's saying, I witness this, this life as it's unfolding and I, and I stay with it. I feel like the promise we have from scripture is not that darkness is removed, but that darkness does not overcome the light. And my creative practice helps me to be present with that, to say, I see it, I feel it, and wrap it in love and gentleness. And what I see there is divine light shining through that particular prism of Bronwyn. It comes out in not just these paintings, but in this way to approach life, in this way to help other people uh, with their own things that are going on. So that's one person. What's yours? Let's all work to magnify the light of heaven, clear ourselves up, become the coolest, brightest, shiniest prisms that we can be just in the way we're meant to be. It's a good deal. Let's let that spiritual light flow through. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for watching. If you had any fun watching, please consider liking, subscribing. It helps this video shine out into the world of YouTube so that more people may see it and hopefully benefit in some way. If you like the work the foundation, the Swedenborg Foundation, who puts this program on, is doing overall, you can donate. It's a nonprofit organization that you can make your donation to. That's going to be great, uh, and it will help us just make the content and, and hopefully affect people in a positive way. All right, so I said we're going to take questions, and we're going to do it right on the other side of this 10-second break, so get them in now. It's your last chance. Let's do it. Okay. We ran long, like we always do, so I'll try to pack some questions in here, but I won't keep us here all night. Okay, let's take a look. Question number one. Seth, does Swedenborg know if there are multiple universes, much evidence for such? If so, do they run on a Fibonacci sequence or sacred geometry? Hmm, we may be doing a show about sacred geometry. There was a presentation that somebody made on Swedenborg and sacred geometry that is supposed to be cool, but I haven't looked into it yet. So... That's, a, that's just so I had something to say to this question, because I don't think Swedenborg talks about multiple physical universes. Of course, he talks about multiple uh, universes in uh, the physical, then the spiritual, you know, and the, the divine and the different levels of the spiritual, different levels of heaven and hell. But in terms of the multiverse, you're talking about the, the like bubble universe theory. That wasn't around. Uh, he doesn't really describe a lot of insight like a lot of special insight into the physical universe. There may be something that, but it's not like he spent his time gaining secrets of the physical universe and, and then bringing those back. So I would say, I'm just going to let you down and say, yeah, he doesn't say much to that, but check in with other Swedenborg 
with, with Swedenborg experts, they may know more better than I. Okay, next one. Gift 12. Is the light sometimes bad, like familiar spirits tricking us? And does Swedenborg say anything about trying to ignore abilities to talk to spirits? Does it make you sick and lost in life? Well, I guess anything could be bad, because there is, like, there's nothing in the world that you can say, in the physical world, that you can say is always good. Something might seem like this looks really legit. Uh, you know, if you watch this, those shows, American Greed, or something about people who got duped by a particular Ponzi scheme, it looked good. They thought they researched it. It looked good. So there certainly can be counterfeiting. Swedenborg talks about that running rampant in the spiritual world, that all kinds of spirits can, can impersonate angels and do all kinds of bad things. That's not that you'll find some people who are in ex, an extreme view that any spiritual anything is a, it's all demons in person. That that's that's not true. I think there are a lot of genuine experiences. I can't say that you can be sure that something light is good. I would say though, I mean, what does it do? I mean, if if it's something that is just brings positive stuff into your life, isn't isn't demanding, uh, isn't scary, it doesn't cause harm, it sounds like heaven. Of course, I can't know for sure. Um, does Swedenborg say anything about trying to ignore abilities to talk to spirits? No. I mean, he he indulged his, but he was he felt like he was very prepared for it. Um, he does say that some people that... Uh, he talks a little bit about other people who see spirits and that it doesn't cause too much harm uh, if they don't get too deeply into it. However, there's plenty of people who go very deeply into it, as Swedenborg did, and, and have a very good life. And he obviously thought this was part of his mission to explore that world. In the end, I I don't know. I'm not a doctor of, of spiritual abilities. I don't know if, it, if holding that in will give you negative physiological effects. Uh, I think if you're going to do anything like that, everyone I've met who's into it, says you got to try to get divine help. Meaning, if you're unsure about how to proceed with a particular thing, you say, you know, God, what should I do? It's not like you're going to answer right then, but if you're going in that direction and setting the intention, I'm trying to do good, that makes you less vulnerable. So those are my guesses. This is not medical advice. You know, ask other people, talk to people who have spiritual experiences, uh, and they may have a different perspective. So, I'd call that O for 2, these first two questions. Okay, let's take a look at another one. This is a great game. Lisa, does Swedenborg address the atonement? And if I'm correct in my interpretation of the atonement, that would be Jesus Christ is atoning for the sins of the world, that God is angry at the human race, and because he sees Jesus suffering, he says, yeah, okay, I forgive you all. Swedenborg has a very different take on the meaning of the crucifixion and the nature of the Trinity. He says that the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, that that's one God, and the, the Trinity is just like in us, that we have a body, spirit, and the effect of our lives. The Holy Spirit is like the effect of God's life. The Father is the internal divine. The Son, Jesus, is the, the external manifestation that you can see. Much like in this episode, you had divine truth, that was this unseeable, unknowable thing, but it manifests in the spiritual world as light. This is a visible form for it. So, that said, Jesus dying on the cross, 
that is not about appeasing God, that was about taking on all of hell, because he was, in a human form, hell thought he had a weakness. It all attacked him, and we did a show called The Spiritual Battles of Jesus Christ. I, instead of me trying to explain the whole thing, watch that episode if you haven't already, or maybe I'm missing the question and uh, you're wondering about something else. So, there's something, hopefully a lead for you. Thank you very much for that. Okay, next one. Drive-by poet. What does Swedenborg say about being good but not believing in God? Because I like Buddhism, but the Buddha didn't talk about God. Yeah, great question. Swedenborg seems to say that it's very important to believe in God. But what does that phrase exactly mean? If somebody... that God is divine love and divine wisdom. So, you, if you're acting in love on a certain level, you're attached to God. I wouldn't go as far as saying, Swedenborg says, it's fine, you don't need to have any concept of God, just be a good person. Because he seems to say that you've got to have some acknowledgement of a divine, of a higher power. It doesn't have to be absolutely the accurate depiction of it, but you've got to have something outside yourself that is sentient. I could see it. It may be that he doesn't describe all the details. I, it certainly seems to me like somebody who is unsure about if there's God or not, but yet uh, lives uh, with love to the neighbor, that that is God. So that's coming out of God. This person's accepting it, that the, the education could follow in the next life. Um, Buddhism, there's a lot of awesome things to take from it. Check out, there's a book called DT by D.T. Suzuki, called Swedenborg, Buddha of the North, where he, he talks about how Swedenborgianism and Buddhism are similar in a lot of ways. I would check that out uh, for more. So I would say if there's something you like in Buddhism, go for it. If, if it's helping you regenerate, become a better person. Okay, let's do a few more here. Cassie, I know that Swedenborg spoke of there being universes outside of our own, but did he ever mention anything about the possibility of parallel or multiples of our own? So that would, I would believe you're referencing, there's some people who think there are multiple universes where all possibilities exist, as in, right now I'm thinking about raising my right hand. In this universe, I did raise it. There's another universe where everything is exactly the same, except I didn't. There's a third universe where I knock over the microphone and run out of this room. That, that you know, and, and on and on forever. Swedenborg never mentions that. Uh, he says that we, there's only one of each of us. I mean, w- there's no two people that can be the same, because to have multiple universes where there's multiple me's doing things seems to imply that, yeah, there's, there's multiple Curtises, but... Uh, well, yeah, that's a scary thought. Uh, Swedenborg says that the angels shudder at the idea of there being any two people who are exactly the same. So it does seem like there's one place here. That's as far as I'm going to go with that. He doesn't address it a ton, but you can kind of extrapolate that he doesn't seem to to support that. And he saw so much of what was going on, but didn't seem to say that... Um, well... There is, in a way, because he talks about the, in the world of spirits, there being a similar... He talks about there being an analog analog to London. We said in our, our episode, Eight Strange Places in the Afterlife, that there's London, the city of London here. There's another London in that world, but it's different people there. It's not like the same people are living in both. So yes and no and sort of and okay. All right, let's do a few more uh, of these. That's what I always say. Let's just do a few more, but they're fun, so I don't want to stop. Carolyn. I wonder why the devil is depicted in red. 
Also in heaven are love and light, the same since God is love. So to answer the second part, first, Swedenborg does say that in God, love and wisdom are united. And I like Johannan's analogy earlier in the episode of the electromagnetic spectrum, and what we feel as heat is actually just light at a different fre- frequency. So I would imagine, yes, that, that and, and also that, you know, when you're in the sunlight, you're feeling the heat as well as the visual component. Swedenborg says that, that you know, that, that love and light are one in God. So it's the same thing. Um, why the devil is depicted in red. Everything has a good and a bad correspondence, Swedenborg says. that. So red can be the good of love. It can also be the evil of harmful love, that everything, water has a correspondence of both truth. You know, we need water, we drink it, and it hydrates us, it, it keeps us alive. But also, you know, water can be very damaging in, in a flood or in a drowning scenario. So there's, there's both. So I would say the devil... Is, is as we, we did an episode called Is the Devil Real, where we talked about Swedenborg's take on that phenomenon, essentially the devil is um, love only for yourself, excluding the, the harm you do to others, and a desire to control everyone, and that burns with the, with the negative red. Okay, we're going to do two more. Let's take a look. Can you die after death? Slash, slash, slash. And Swedenborg says, yeah, the second death is what he calls the state of hell, he calls that spiritual death. That's the real death. And that's people who are in that state, they wouldn't think that they were dead. Um, They would think that, hey, I'm living life, like, this is really fun. I'm like, I just got this thing I wanted. I just got revenge on this person that I wanted. I, you know, got the sort of pleasure I'm looking for. Uh, Yesterday was really bad, but today's better. I'm alive. Angels call that death because... You're, you're so dead to the actual substance of life, which is mutual love. You live with your blinders on. You're experiencing these counterfeit emotions. They would call that death. There's not the kind of death like, look out for that rock. Oh, you got hit, and now you're dead again. Swedenborg does talk about spirits who think they can, who are so full of rage, they try to kill each other, but you can't die in the same way through the destruction of the shape of your body, as Swedenborg describes. Thank you for that question. One more. Let's, let's go out on a high note. Sebastian, what about sound? Could divine light as opposed to natural light be experienced in part as sound, or for that matter, texture, shape, movement, and emotion? I think that there is the potential to experience the divine in all kinds of ways. Um, Sound, Swedenborg talks a lot about sound. You look physically at it, it's it's just another kind of, of wave, and Swedenborg says that Divine love and wisdom are in everything. We did do a show. It was more about music than about sound. It might be cool to do a show about sound. But if you're getting the sense that, yeah, can you only uh, experience divine light visually, there's probably other things. I mean, the the other senses also can be inputting truth from God, you know but it's in different ways. They affect you in a different way. Swedenborg says sound has to do with obedience or with doing, uh, so on. I would certainly think that you just think about certain textures. They're so cool. Certain shapes. uh, There's got to be something of God in those. So there's got to be something, man, something, something, something. That's how I want to end it. Thanks for the questions. Really appreciate you guys appreciate you guys taking it seriously, thinking of things that that I can barely answer at all, which uh, is a sign that that you got you're taking you're into the topic, which is awesome. Lets us do this. Really appreciate it. This is actually 
the first in a two-part series on light. The next, we sort of looked at the nature of spiritual light here, but next week we're going to actually zoom into Swedenborg's description of the afterlife and see and hear his depictions of all these different kinds of phenomena. How does light appear? Is there lightning in the afterlife? What's that all like? So join us next week, same place, same time, for the light in the afterlife. I'll see you then. Thanks.